millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Excelsior Capital Podcast. Today I'm here with Titi Mutundi. Titi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So she is the founder and lead consultant at Naka Legacy Planning. She's also co-founder at African Family Firms, which is a nonprofit Africa Family Business Association. She's a well-versed, award-winning businesswoman with over 12 years of experience building her own successful software development, publishing and education business. During this time, CC developed a passion to assist family businesses, build multi-generational businesses, which translate into multi-generational legacies. And based on the review and the homework I've done, it seems like you've got at a minimum five different jobs, but I could be undershooting that. And you're involved with a million different things. So could you maybe give the listener a breakdown of kind of your main focuses today and how these different titles all kind of work together? Yes, sure. I would say I'm an entrepreneur. So because of that, I end up wearing quite a number of hats. I'm a third generation family business owner. Unfortunately for me, all the family businesses in my family did not translate to wealth being passed on, but more the entrepreneurial gene. And so I started my entrepreneurial path when I was about 19. And I am just, I know I am actually 40 now. So I've had plenty of time to sharpen those skills and really learn a lot as well as impart a lot of the teachings that I have been so lucky to get from a number of people who've been instrumental in my journey. And so I have a publishing firm that's 15 years old, Montessori Primary School, 
which is about six years old now, and it's becoming a group of schools, as well as the software development firm that is four years old, and then the family business and family office advisory. My business structures uh, are very simplified in that I have built strong teams around businesses and leveraged on people's skills and talents and made sure that they are the right people and the right fit for the organizational culture, whichever entity it is that I'm building. And that has really helped me to be able to have an overlooking role where I can look at the finer things that usually get lost in operations and be more of a visionary than be stuck in the day-to-day firefighting that happens within organizations. And that has also given me the advantage when I now work with family businesses and family offices to pick up where there's a slack or to help them create something that is unique to them and their businesses. So I do want to touch on the first comment you made. I've had a number of family office and family business professionals from Africa on the show. It it seems like in Africa is not a monolith, right? So I don't want to just speak to the entire continent, but culturally, multi-generational businesses have historically had trouble maintaining over the long term. It's very typically entrepreneur, first generation, and then any number of things happen. So if you're willing to share kind of what was that experience for you and, and your family? And you know, mentioned that it spurred entrepreneurship, but it wasn't able to kind of translate into an ongoing enterprise or wealth for your generation. Yes, absolutely. I think in Africa, we have some of the most startling figures when it comes to that lack of ability to translate into multi-generational. There's a lot of different angles you can look at it from, mostly because when you look at Africa, like you said, it's not a monolith. It's quite vast and there are different types of family businesses. There's some types of family businesses that have been very successful on the continent. And what I have done when I work with these family businesses is I've kind of created categories to look at them through that allows me to really dig down on a lens. What does that look like? So you have your native African family businesses, which is typically your your Black Africans. And family businesses for Black Africans have have been something that has been happening within more of a a 50-year outlook. This is when post-colonialism, post-slavery, post-everything that got, comes with all those things, looking at being able to, to own businesses, to start businesses, to run businesses. We, we don't have a good track record because I think there's also the psyche around money, the psyche around ownership, the understanding of how to handle money, how to create money, and how to build businesses. The education system hasn't really been great across the board. It doesn't really matter what which African you are. The education system was created so that it could empower those that are going into the working class, those that are going into work for the government, those are going into work for companies that are set up. And post-independence, for most countries, there was no actual review of the education system. So you get a lot more people coming out that have no entrepreneurial knowledge or being encouraged to actually look at things from an entrepreneurial lens. So you have those that have are naturally inclined to learn quickly. Like I've been lucky, my grandparents on both sides were those people where they got an opportunity during a time where these opportunities went open for the Black Africans. And they managed to build quite substantial family businesses. And lo and behold, the 
the troubles that they had that actually broke down the family businesses were nothing that looked like what it looks like when people think about, they think, oh, maybe it was the colonialism, maybe it was they didn't have opportunities during that time. It wasn't any of that. They had the opportunities. It was during colonialism. They managed to build these businesses. They managed to be successful. However, it was a family dynamics that broke down their family businesses that took, that like decimated the wealth. On my paternal side, my grandfather passed on. He had a heart attack. One morning he was going to his farm because he had a ranch, a series of ranches in an area up in, in southern Zimbabwe. And he just dropped it. He had a heart attack. And when he had a heart attack, his oldest son then automatically took over the, the family business. A young man who has no understanding of wealth or wealth building and doesn't have an education to back him up. And he then decimated everything. It didn't work out because he didn't collaborate with other family members. And he took over everything and thought, oh, I can do it. And then realized he couldn't, but was too far, too late, too gone. On my maternal side, my grandfather, he built quite a prolific business and he had a series of retail outlets and they were run by my grandmother. So notably, my grandmother wasn't educated. She didn't get a formal education. So she wasn't the educated one, but she was the business savvy one. She went in, she ran the family businesses and she made them very profitable. At some point, my grandfather, I don't know, I could say a typical male, but that would be prejudice. But he decided he wanted to take on another wife. That did not go down well with my grandmother. And well, in, in our culture, polygamy is something that was accepted. And my grandmother just wouldn't accept it because she, she was a converted Christian and she wanted a monogamous marriage. So she then gave up the marriage as well as the business. And she moved from where the business was and moved in with her, with her children in an urban area, leaving my grandfather to run the business. But because he wasn't business savvy, he wasn't the one who was actually doing the work. So that inability to identify human resources and being able to apply them where they're necessary became an issue. After a couple of years, slowly but surely, the business got run down. And by the time he passed on many years later, there was nothing to speak of. It was just more of a fairy tale that people spoke of that lived during that era, but it never translated. And these issues are primarily because of family issues, the breakdown in relationships, the inability to place the right resources within the family to where they can work better. Because if you look at it from an objective point of view, in both sides, they could have been multi-generational businesses. My grandfather had to simply be a bit more clued up on how to carry on engaging my grandmother, allow her to probably take a part of the business and run it and, and continue getting the financial benefit of it because she obviously knew what she was doing. And the moment he saw the business was going down, he would have quickly then said, wait a minute, there's something that's missing. It's probably this part. Let me re-engage because he had children with her and they are potential next, next gens who could potentially have the ability to run the businesses. So that multi-generation conversation could have definitely happened. And on my paternal side, if my uncle had possibly engaged my grandmother, who was very active in the business when my grandfather was there, and got her to continue being active and probably engage other family members, they probably would have seen success. But then these are issues of governance. They weren't looked at during that time. No one knew what governance was during that time. And so nothing was implemented. Yeah, it's fascinating to talk about the cultural differences that kind of overlay within the family. I know other African professionals that I've had on the show have spoken about within their particular country or tribal culture, 
oftentimes it is taboo to speak about death. And so Mm -hmm. it can be a real challenge, obviously, to do estate planning if it's just not culturally acceptable around the dinner table or the conference table to talk about death. Because I think the way it was described to me was it's almost like you're asking for it to come to a family member if you were to bring it up. Is that the case? You're in Zimbabwe, correct? Yes, I think from my experience, it's not only in Zimbabwe or Africa. I've seen it like I've worked with families across the globe and I've seen that the inability to face our own mortality is something that everyone struggles with. In other cultures, it's become something that's forbidden. Like, why do you want to talk about it? I wouldn't say that they, in our culture, we say don't talk about it at all. But then there are certain times where people find it like eerie if you want to bring up the subject of death all of a sudden. And it's simply because people are afraid to look at their own mortality. I mean, I'm thinking of my children coming to say to me, so mommy, when you die, I think because I'm a lot more sensitized to what can happen, I'm a bit more open to the conversation. But I know elders in the community where they won't want to talk about it. And also, I think it's hiding behind the fact that death is final. There's certain things that individuals don't want to face during their lifetime. They feel like, you know what, I do not want to take ownership of this behavior or these mistakes. So the best way to cover it up is not to want to talk about it at all. And what would bring up that conversation? Estate planning, because now we're saying, let's look at the estate. Let's look at who are beneficiaries of the estate. What is that going to look like? And so if they avoid having the conversation whatsoever on a formal basis, they avoid having conversations that might be difficult and owning up. And I found that it's primarily when there are multiple families involved and there are children that have not been legitimized that are involved that usually pop at funerals. That's when people like all of a sudden it's like they're no longer there to take responsibility. So they prefer not to have that conversation. But the truth is, it causes more harm than good to not have the conversation at all. But most times I felt that the conversation around death is mostly feared when there are issues that people don't feel they want to resolve. Yeah, I, I would agree 100%. One of the things that I was excited about talking to you, I've been doing a lot of homework and research on this concept of depopulation, a lot of European, Southeast Asian, and to some extent, Western hemisphere countries are facing this dramatic population drop. Africa Mm -hmm. is really a standout in that it is very young, very dynamic, and will grow in population as opposed to the rest of the world, which Mm -hmm. makes this this conversation about working with next gens, I think, would be a huge opportunity. How are you seeing it with the clients that you're speaking with on continent? Are you feeling and seeing that energy and dynamic of a lot of young entrepreneurs, a lot of wealth generation, especially within the the tech industry? I am seeing there's a lot of growth on the continent. So you have a lot of next gens that are coming into their own and slowly taking over family businesses or family households and bringing in that newness. And that I think is an exciting time. But also there's there has to be mention of the fact that there is projected to be about 2 billion people by 2050 on the continent. And that will make us the youngest population on planet Earth. What's really missing, I think the stopgap is as much as we might talk about the there's wealth on the continent and there are people who are doing well, there's also that great wealth gap that is, it's global. 
it's more apparent when you have a populous situation, whereas and you look at Africa and you think compared to the people with wealth, compared to the people without wealth, there's a huge gap. But then it goes with demographic. The bigger your um, your core group that you're looking at, the bigger the gap is going to be evident. And in Africa, it's very much the same. So when you look at it that from, from that angle, you see that we are not near enough to where we need to be as a continent. We need a lot more entrepreneurial training. We need a lot more people willing to take the risk of being entrepreneurs, being taught what it looks like and how they can do it better. There's also that need also to upskill the manpower that we have on the continent. We can have a huge group of people, but as long as they're not not trained, as long as they're not savvy, like, do they have access to the internet? Do they have access to really push that technology conversation? Because the reason why technology is done so well in the West is because you have so many people with internet access. You have so many people with the ability to use the services that allow us to use the internet. Do we have the same conversation happening on the continent? So there's so much opportunities in the gaps that are not being filled in, but we need African entrepreneurs to do it. And the next gen really need to step up and we need a lot more of the next gens that are being empowered a lot more of the next gens that are being given the right tools and access to resources to be able to do it. You referenced this earlier, but obviously colonialism has a huge impact on the entire continent. For a long time, there has been a dynamic of brain drain occurring. Lots of entrepreneurs or families, once they create a certain amount of wealth or they have a business and obviously the political situation in a lot of these African countries is challenging for business owners. What do you think, I mean, this is a kind of a, a broad question, but within the client base that you're working with on continent, are you seeing more folks choose to stay home, stay within their birth country? Are people looking to go to Europe or Australia, America, et cetera? Where are you kind of seeing and feeling that right now? I think there is a continuous brain drain, especially among the youth that have access to resources, the youth that should be encouraged to stay and build because you get a lot of parents when they get wealth, they send their children obviously off continent to get a better education. And it's not because the African education is not great. We have some pretty great um, spaces for education. However, they haven't been upgraded or regulated in a way that would make us as, at par with the global education system. So you get parents that choose to then send their children outside the country. And so ironically, when you send children outside to get a university education, that is the time where they're leaving the nest. And we all know that when animals leave the nest or the den, they are beginning to create their own independence. They're creating their own world, their own experiences. And it's at that pivotal time that a lot of these next gens are being sent out of the country and they acclimatize to the countries they go and spend four or five years of the most critical times of their lives in. So I can imagine if you're a young adult and you don't know how to be a young adult in, in Zimbabwe, but you know how to be a young adult in the UK or the US. You've set up your bank accounts, you've set up your lifestyle, you've set up how you live and why you live that way, your own identity in that space. 
what are the chances that you want to go back home to where you haven't experienced or set up all these things and start a new life there? It becomes that feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm ripping away from everything I know to start over, which is an experience most people avoid at all costs. So you might get some who come for holidays, but it's more of I'm going to mom's house. Or And I think you've seen it even in the U.S. where if mostly if the children go to out-of-state colleges, universities, they tend to settle down there as opposed to coming home. And coming home becomes something you do during like your family assembly events, like your Christmas, your Thanksgiving, your Easter's. That's when you go home. But then the rest of the time, you you want to be where you're settling. So that's probably one of the biggest mistakes we're making on the continent because a lot of these children, the moment they get access, they're being pushed out of their home countries. They don't know how to survive in their home countries. They come back and all of a sudden, everything that was, you're tapping to pay for everything doesn't work like that anymore. Where you have, you walk into a grocery store, you've got access to everything. It doesn't work like that anymore. So, and then they probably, during the times that they leave the nest, they meet the the people that they want to spend the rest of their lives with. And they start wanting to build families. And those people are not from home. So then they decide, okay, let's settle somewhere where it's neutral. So that conversation is a very difficult one because the brain drain will continue happening if the governments don't fix the countries in a way that the parents feel comfortable enough to have their children have education there. And as well as when it comes to wealth movement, it it's, comes to legislation. Are we creating tax havens? Are we creating safe environments economically that investors will say, okay, I can put my money there and I still get it out and get a, a, a benefit? Or is it when you think of Africa, you're thinking, okay, in this country in particular, if I put my money there, I don't know if I'm going to get it back. No investor is going to do it. And even the people within the country, if they're making money in that country. They want to feel like, do I feel safe with the banking system? Do I feel safe with the taxing system? And that's what drives business savvy people. That's what drives wealthy families. They want to find where they can get the most for the money that they're making. Because believe it or not, they're working very hard to get this money. And a lot of them have worked many, many years, decades to be to get to where they are. They want to make sure that they protect these funds for their next gens. And their next gens also equally, they're creating their own identity and may not always necessarily feel like they want to go home. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. You mentioned education a number of times. You, you, I know you're involved with it, the Montessori space. Why did you choose that particular regimen or, or discipline? And, you know, how's it been going education is a notoriously challenging space to operate in and and to sustain and especially if you don't have a lot of government support so i'm curious what that journey looked like how you got involved and, and what it looks like today so i was introduced to the montessori system when my oldest was a year and a half just shy of a year and a half by a lady who had just opened a Montessori preschool. And that's how I got engaged in Montessori. So my oldest is now 10 turning 11. 
And when the journey in Montessori started with her, understanding how it works, understanding how well she started doing in it, and understanding how, what the methodology is about. And I think when it comes to the average human child, Montessori is probably one of the best ways that we can teach children because I always give people an example of a cell phone. And I say, when you look at a cell phone and you get it, it's usually blank. It's just being switched on, but it's got nothing else in there. There's no data. There's there's just the basic apps. You have to fill in the, the gaps to make it work the way you want it to work, right? So when you think of that, and then you think the first thing that you want to do, especially with these smartphones, is you want to put it onto a Wi-Fi network or an internet network so that it can start downloading and updating whatever it needs to do to function. Oh, and these apps start updating themselves and you start adding apps and, and you get excited and everything. So take into that and think of it, your phone being a child. A child comes into the world with the basic operating systems. So they know how to eat, they know how to poop, they know how to sleep. They basically know those basic apps are in there, uploaded, ready to go. But the moment you let them into the world, whatever environment you let them into, you are basically plugging them into the biggest Wi-Fi network ever that man can't even create because it's just organic itself. And what does a phone do? Does it ask you whether not or does it automatically just start updating it automatically starts updating it automatically starts improving itself it's it's downloading consistently we do not teach children how to talk we do not teach children how to walk they learn by being in an environment and picking up the gist it's when we see they're not reaching those milestones it's simply because you're thinking at this age they should be able to do this they haven't done this let's go see a doctor because simply, you know that once they're plugged in, they plug and play. They're in the Wi-Fi. They will update themselves. So when it comes to most education systems, they want to start teaching children actively like at three, four years old. But from the Montessori methodology, it's very clear that the child starts learning from the point of contact, the point that it gets into the environment, it starts learning in some way, whether it's normal learning, whether it's learning that is slow, what is quick, it is learning. And the human brain is like millions of times faster than, than any machine. So you can imagine now you have got this supercomputer that's been plugged into the world that is learning faster than you can ever imagine. And then you're slowing it down and saying, let's learn the colors. It's like, what? We're learning colors? But you've got, they've got access to the internet. They've got access to television. They've got access to so many learning channels that you are not taking into cognition. You're not even noticing them because you're thinking, well, they're just the child, they're young. But you can imagine a phone that has a one terabyte memory that has been plugged in and has no supervision and you leave it alone for at least three years. What's going to happen there? Isn't it going to be like, it's, it's going to want to fill up. It's got plenty of space. It has no social life. It has nothing to do. It's sitting there. It's learning from every single experience. It's learning all the senses I used to learn. Everything around it is learning. And so the Montessori method is just basically, it makes you aware that the child is learning from point of contact. And you have to be mindful of what you put in front of the child. And throughout our lives, until we get to like our elderly ages, the one thing we're trying to answer is, who am I? Why am I here? And what do I contribute? In what area am I going to contribute better? 
And the traditional system doesn't cater for that. The traditional system just wants you to download everything that they think that man has learned that is necessary for you to learn and put it in the box. Once you've learned this, you've got your ticks, it's ticking off boxes. But the Montessori system is saying, this child wants to learn as much as possible. So as much as you can give them that makes sense in line with whatever examination system you want to give them, that's fine. But they want to answer, who am I? So you have to give them the opportunity to do that. They want to answer, where am I supposed to be giving back? You have to give them the opportunity to do that. And because of that, I love the Montessori system. My 10-year-olds then went on to write your grade seven entrance exam. That's like the pre-high school exam last year when she was 10. Most children write it when they're about 13 and go to high school at 14 or 13, 14 is when they go to high school. So she started high school this year and she's turning 11 and she's not overwhelmed. She enjoys the learning journey. She's got two other siblings that are in the same system that absolutely love learning because it's not a chore for them. It's like, I don't have anything else to do. I don't have a social life. This is my social life. And then they start making friends within that social life. They start growing their own identity. They start seeing what they like and what they don't like. So it gives them the opportunity to just be human. As well said, I don't think many adults, especially in America, could answer the question of what their purpose is. So, you know, it's impressive and kudos to you for all the work you're putting in there because it's not easy. I do want to go back to discussing kind of the family office, the family business space and, and how this concept of this cultural impact has on it. Historically, has there been a distinction between a family office and a family business in terms of an operating company and then, you know, a separate entity, or are they typically just been one within many African families? I think it goes with the entrepreneurial journey. Initially, when we start as entrepreneurs, our our business and our family and our everything is just one, one hot pot that's got everything in there and we're trying to figure it out. It's when your business gets significantly bigger and you are past paying yourself a salary and you're now just paying yourself dividends and you're now sitting on on larger boards and you have got multiple businesses and it's grown to a point where it's no longer makes sense for the business to be covering the family bills, investments and so forth. And you have to set up a separate office that then manages the family. And I think that's the that is the normal course of the lifespan of family offices, how they start and how then they become family offices as we know them. And it's the same across the world. And it's the same in Africa, where initially you find the family can manage it themselves. Then they have an accountant. Then it's like, okay, we have got substantial wealth. We need family office to do it. The thing is, there's not that many families that have family offices. It's one of those where you have as you said, we have a very young population. And so we are very young in a lot of things. We're still learning in a lot of spaces. And so we do have family offices, quite substantial family offices, but they fall under different demographics. They sometimes fall under more of the families that have come from a colonial background that have had wealth in their families. They, they've been running and multi-generational wealth for a minute and it's not possible for their families to not have family offices. Then you have the more ambitious families that came through 
bondage onto the continent through colonialism itself. And they have done superly well. And you find that a lot of the billionaires on the continent are under this demographic. And they tend to be a very close-knit and very intentional group that if they do have family offices, they're not of public knowledge and they make sure that they handle them in that way. And they've been successful. They've done a lot of multi-generation transfers that we've seen and there's a lot of growth. And their next gens have been very ambitious in the growth of the family businesses from just trading businesses to becoming, to buying out manufacturing, government parasitals that are becoming privatized. So there's just a lot of growth you've seen on the continent and there's lots of different players. But we are still very young. From what I can see, there are still a lot of families that are still handling the wealth within their homes, within their small businesses, and not yet being as ambitious as to set up family offices. Yeah, it's fascinating. It'll be so interesting to see how it plays out. You know, whenever I see family office conferences or agendas, it's always kind of North America, Europe, Southeast Asia, but then it's Africa gets looped in with like the Middle East or these huge geographic areas. And it just seems like such an underserved marketplace that hopefully that that narrative will change. I want to kind of pivot a little bit to your own work, your podcast, how you think about providing information, education, and value to your community and what you're seeing theme-wise play out there. I, I know kind of what's happening within the North American landscape, but I'm curious when you have speakers or professionals come on or even within your clients, like what's keeping them up at night right now within the African family office sector? I think it's um, growth. Growth has become a very big issue on the continent. People are looking for a lot of funding because as the population is growing, the need for services, goods, accommodation, development is naturally taking its course. You cannot overlook it and ignore it. It's something that is very real, that continues to be real. And so because of that, there's a lot more funding needed that has to go towards that. And what keeps a lot of businesses, family offices awake is how to get the right funding how to structure it correctly, and also how to make sure that they're investing in the right jurisdictions. And when we say the right jurisdictions is that you, with obviously the change that's going on the continent, you find that previously the bigger economies that are still very much the biggest economies on the continent are, are facing huge issues. Like South Africa right now has got the, the ESCOM issue. Power outages are going out for 16 to 18 to 20 hours in the day. And they're saying that's going to last until like two, two, three more years. And that's just an estimation. It could be longer than that. And coming from Zimbabwe, I know how that story ends. I, I've experienced it firsthand. I've lived it firsthand. And I know that it can be quite disappointing and quite painful. Then yeah, we had to Nigeria. reschedule our initial conversation because I think you lost power yes. or Wi-Fi or, or obviously both, which yes. coming from North America is just incomprehensible, frankly, outside of a severe weather issue. But you do, your email is kind of like, oh, yeah, these things happen from time to time. It's just very difficult for someone to like comprehend. me. To, yeah, I mean, it's just very hard to do business that way, right? 
welcome to africa i mean yeah. like most of the countries in africa we know power cuts we so you can imagine like an economy that was working and was working on the normal power supply all of a sudden manufacturers having to subsidize the the power supply by getting in generators by investing in solar power that brings the prices of things up that makes manufacturing hard it you'd go into restaurants and shopping malls they have to like now subsidize and create their own sources of power that brings up pricing because that adds on to their costs and then you look at Nigeria that has had the currency crisis that has been quite tough on them and you you can see all these things we've experienced them in zim i'm very familiar with them and i'm like oh we've been there we know how this works it's not shocking and that's the thing the fact that it's not shocking is it's a norm and i would just like to say this from the experience that i've had as a family business advisor that there is this research that has been done by ivan lonsberg and, and company around extremophile profiles and i find that at least you would say over well over 50% of the world falls under extremophile business profiles. Most of the regions across the world struggle with the power cuts. They struggle with currency issues. They struggle with stability with their governments and so forth. I think it's just that when we look at the frameworks, we look from a Western point of view, and I don't say Western, it's mostly the United States and some parts of Europe that and, and the UK that have been successful and have been the benchmarks for a lot of development globally. But the truth is the rest of the world has got so far to go to catch up. And it's when you're advising people from this end of, of the world or the majority of the other parts of the world, you have to be mindful of the fact that they don't know what democracy looks like. They don't know what having stable power supply looks like. And it's it's a way of life. You have people who are doing construction and development in places where bombs are going off a few meters down the road. It's it's a way of life. And it's we need a lot more work or research or data coming from these regions to give us a clue of how they cope because looking at what has happened with Russia and Ukraine, a lot of the world has then had to face some of the issues some of these countries face every day, simply because there has been a, a cut in the supply chain. There's been political unrest. And yeah, we've had to live with it for the longest time. And the families that we're advising, some of the advice that would work in the West does not work here. Well, TCM, we're up against time, but that's a good way to end it, I think. Just if anybody listening wants to learn more about family offices, family business, especially within the African continent, you're an incredible resource given all the different hats you wear. The website's terrific. If people are interested in connecting with you about the podcast or your other work, what's the best way for them to get in touch and learn more? Well, I am very active on LinkedIn. You can find me at Sitimutendi on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, Sitimutendi. And I have my website, Naka Legacy dot com and then the organizational website for African family firms where people can get to engage in the communities of various African family offices and family African family businesses and it's africanfamilyfirms.org and we'll include all that in the show notes one question we do ask people that come on the show do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life Yes, I do. I am one of the 5 a.m. clubbers, but I wake up around 4 a.m. I find it's, 
it's a quiet, peaceful time where my whole house is asleep. So I feel like Santa Claus where everybody's asleep. <laughs> and I think during that day, during that time of the day, I get a few minutes to reflect on my previous day and also put intent into my upcoming day and look at what I've committed to, what I can actually do and how to navigate it. I think just having that clarity of mind and, and mindset, there are days where it's stressful, you're coming, you're going through a stressful period, but just having that quiet time where you don't have to play any of the roles that appear on your CV or in your biography, you're just being yourself and you're asking yourself, Titsi, how are you doing? Titsi, do you need anything? Is there any time during today that we can spend some time just for you? Or is this time this morning sufficient enough? And I think it, it reminds me that above all the roles that I play, all the hats that I wear, I am still Titsi. I will always be Titsi. And I take from the time, my, my kids are all C-section babies. And before you go into a C-section, the first thing they ask is they ask your name. Because when you go into the recovery, when they are calling you to from the medicine, they have to call you by your name because your brain will react to hearing your name. And so spending that time early in the morning where I speak to Titi and I remember my name, I remember my dreams, I remember who I am, really helps to center my day. And even when it gets chaotic, I know that tomorrow morning, I'm going to have another chance to meditate again to speak to Titi again and find out where she is, what she would like to do and how she would like to handle life. Well, that's well said and good for you for doing that. It's very powerful. Thank I'm you. an early riser as well. So I can appreciate where you're coming from. But Titi, thank you so much for joining us. Keep up the good work. Best of luck. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review, and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.